For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Juvenile justice education is an aspect of education that goes unrecognized and unnoticed. This is Susan Lambert. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast from Amplify, where the science of reading lives. This season, we've been tackling the hard stuff, taking on some of the most difficult challenges when it comes to literacy instruction. And on this episode, we're talking about literacy and the prison system. To unpack this, I'm joined by Hildebrand Pelser III. In more than three decades in education, Pelser has served as an assistant regional superintendent, principal, assistant principal, and physical education teacher. Pelser has directed educational programs in correctional facilities, and he wrote about his work inside the Philadelphia prison system in his book, Unlocking Potential, Organizing a School Inside a Prison. On this episode, Pelser discusses the importance and challenge of providing high-quality literacy instruction inside a prison setting, and he also makes a case for having up-and-coming teachers work in correctional settings. Here's my conversation with Hildebrand Pelser III. I am so excited to have Hildebrand Pelser III join us today. Hildebrand, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure being here. I am really excited to to bring your expertise and your story to our listeners because I think it's quite an overlooked topic. But before we jump in, I would love if you could tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and, and how literacy became important to you. Absolutely. Again, good morning. Uh, Hildebrand Pelzer III, born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I live with my wife and daughter outside of Philadelphia and Montgomery County. Uh, come from a family of educators. In fact, my mom is a retired principal, and my dad is a retired guidance counselor, and my brother works in higher education in Texas. And um, education has always been a part of my life. But I did not aspire to become an educational leader or school leader or principal. Uh, I aspired to become uh, work in sports management. I wanted to be a general manager or athletic director or coach or something like that because I had a great love for basketball. My family is a basketball-driven family. Uh, my dad is, uh, was a great athlete in his days. But uh, it wasn't until I went to work after graduating from college um, at a juvenile prison 
and I was working as a physical education teacher and a athletic director and a basketball coach. Hmm. And on days that the principal was absent from school, the assistant principal would take over. But he would ask me to join him, help him, support him. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I saw the students that I saw in the physical education setting, athletic setting, in the classroom settings. Mm. And they were the same students, but two different behaviors. And it was there that I uh, realized that they struggled with learning. They had a fear of learning, an aversion toward learning, couldn't read, write, spell their name. Some of them didn't know their birth dates and those type of things. And and that inspired me or um, pushed me to think about whether I was going down the right path in sports management or should I be in education. And after talking to people, getting some coaching, getting some wisdom and wise counsel from the principal and others, I decided to pursue a career in education administration. Oh, that's amazing. So Mm -hmm. education is in in your DNA probably, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I do have a question about that. Like, so you decided to take a a position inside a prison as a, a basketball coach and, you know, helping with sport. How did that come about? Yeah, I needed a job, you know. I needed a job. I wanted to go back to school. In fact, I went back to school for uh, my master's, started at Temple University in sports management before I eventually transferred to another university for education administration. But it was just in that setting that um, I learned so much. And, And the principal, after talking with him a lot about the dilemma I was seeing. Yeah. He encouraged me and told me how much I could impact kids if I pursued a career in education administration. So he actually said, do you want to run a gym or do you want to run a school? And just (laughs) running a school just sounded so much better than running a gym. So he put it like that to me. He put it where the goats could get it. (laughs) Well, the good news is, is when you run a school, you can also run a gym because you can have the gym with inside the school, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, that's great. You know, there's, um, we hear a lot about connections between, you know, reading or dyslexia, incarceration. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of misconceptions. I would Mm -hmm. love if you could talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions between that connection. Yeah. So um, definitely, and and I always say this as a disclaimer, I'm not a reading expert or reading specialist or write any curriculum around reading. Um, But I do understand that what I observed was that without reading, without that important life skill, your life is going to be very difficult. And so many black boys in particular uh, were the students who I was seeing most of having this trouble. And so over the years, as a school leader, I just made reading a part of the school plan and a part of what teachers had to understand, be trained around, think about when they're teaching students. And so just that experience of working with incarcerated youth is drives my perspective of how I think about education. And so over the years, I've been a school leader in high schools, alternative schools, schools for expelled students, a correctional setting, the Philadelphia prison system, and an elementary school. And I see the reading impact differently among all of those ranges, but particularly in the elementary level, uh, I saw teachers who struggled with teaching reading. 
Mm. Um, they did not want their students to be below basic or um, not on target or uh, leaving their classrooms unable to read, but they were not prepared for the teaching of reading, the teaching of phonics, phonemic awareness, vocabulary development, all of those things, understanding fluency. And so I put a lot of effort with my leadership teams to help teachers get better with that. And then on the dyslexia side of things, I began to think about where some of the challenges that kids were having in schools was that because of the lack of awareness about dyslexia or the lack of exposure and training to school professionals about dyslexia, myself included. Mm -hmm. And so I believe there are a number of students who did not thrive under my leadership because I was unaware of dyslexia or really how to go about the science of reading and implementing it. And so I just make that a part of my work, a part of what I do. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, I've been able to not only help my own teachers, but I've been able to go out and speak and expose the connection or make the connection between children who are incarcerated, mostly because they cannot read and that we don't want that to happen. And so we have to focus on reading as a true school plan. You know, I heard you talk in your one of your TED Talks, and we'll link our listeners in the show notes to those TED Talks. I heard you directly address this idea of, well, the prison system figures out how many beds they need based on thir- third grade re- reading scores. That's a misconception, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I, you know, I shared that in a TED Talk that um, my experience working inside of the fifth largest urban county jail system in the country, the Philadelphia prison system, at no time did anyone ever connect or ask me about cells and beds and intake as it related to reading scores. Hmm. But but when I look at research, and I use research in in my presentations, there are things like uh, when you look at discipline, students who are handled or managed because of behavior issues and we go down that path uh, avoiding class sleeping in class not being engaged we focus on behavior and not come back to the point that maybe it's reading and teachers needing more support in reading and so there's a lot of research that speaks to how we leave kids behind because we don't focus enough on reading and reading skills. Mm, Because some of these other behaviors then are sort of distractions from what the core issue is for them and they don't know how to to ask for that. Yeah, Distractions and a lot of resources are driven towards behavior, whether that's positive behavior, relationships first. Um, You know, we always talk about social emotional learning. All of these things are important. Yeah. Behavior, health, but we need to kind of link it back to reading because when you when you dig deeper and peel the onion a little bit more, you see that the child is really struggling with reading and they want to read. Hmm. Um, one one little question for you. I know you talk about um, you got yourself trained in what it takes to, to read too, right? Didn't you go through letters training? Is that right? Absolutely. So what I did, uh, I took a, uh, my school through the reading shift. That's a term that we called it, and it was around the COVID, right before COVID period, looking at data and seeing that we had low numbers of students at Target in the K-5 to space, yep. but also in the K-2 to space. And we, we, my leadership team and I, we really had a, 
hard conversation with our teachers about what we're seeing and how we are responsible and we have to get better. And so it took a lot of emotional toll on some of the teachers to just be humble and, and, and vulnerable around the fact that they needed this learning. They needed this help. And we um Working with our district and some other partners, we brought in letters for two years uh, at the school. It wasn't something that was mandated on us or anything like that. We researched some organizations and we decided on letters and then we implemented it for two years. And a number of teachers stuck with it. Uh, Some did not or they moved on, that type of thing. But when we look back at the data of the teachers who stuck with it and monitored and progress monitored their data from a full school year, we saw that those teachers had greater impact mm-hmm. on reading for their kids. That's amazing. What did you call it? The reading shift? Is the that reading shift. <laughs> we were going to have a reading shift. So everything was about reading. Uh, everything was about, you know, looking at student work, looking at things that, um, the type of learning targets we were putting in front of kids, uh, looking at our assessments, unpacking our assessments, putting our students and looking at the data and working with them in small groups, engaging them in interventions and all of those type of things. But it was a heavy lift. But it's something that as a leader, I just messaged it as we're going through this reading shift. It's going to be tough. But on the other side, we'll see better days and better results. Mm, That's amazing. Um, So a little segue here. You wrote this book called Unlocking Potential. Uh, It's it's really it's really amazing. And again, we'll link our listeners in the show notes to this. Uh, What what was your motivation to write this book? Originally, the motivation was to um, help correctional educators. So if you read about schools inside of juvenile detention facilities or prisons, Uh, The trend is that they're unsuccessful, they don't perform, Um, kids are lagging in their cells, they're not getting enough school hours. So the book was about giving non-educators, but educators and folks who work in juvenile justice, the opportunity to see that you can be successful, students can be successful in an incarcerated setting. And Mm -hmm. so that was initially what the book was about and is about. But over the years, because the book has been out for for many years now, um, and hearing from other readers and other people around the country, I've learned that people uh, think about the school-to-prison pipeline by reading my book. People learn about uh, school turnaround by reading my book. Um, People learn about relationships with kids that are important and need to be had by reading my book. People think about reading. So it has touched more topics than I even imagine it would. Hmm. You talk a lot too about the value of of this uh, literacy education or education in general, particularly literacy education in the correctional mm-hmm. settings. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what's the big picture of what it takes to make students be successful there, or or why do you like are so passionate about that within the incarcerated system? Well, because incarceration is really about security. Is uh, we talk about rehabilitation, but it's really security and punishment. It's really um, about keeping others away from others. And so in the correctional setting, particularly in the Philadelphia prison system, it was also about having enough space to educate 
the number of juvenile boys in particular who were incarcerated, having enough space to bring them to a location to um, even educate them. It was about making certain that the teachers who were assigned there understood that they too had to understand curriculum and they too had to be professionally developed and they too had to be intentional about the learning of students who may not return home but continue on to a state correctional institution for, you know, decades or for the rest of their life. And that they still, we still wanted them to grow up to be respectful young men. And so uh, for me, it was about logistics. It was about education. It was about thinking about students who had IEPs. And it was really about educating the prison community the correctional officers, the wardens, and others about the importance of their role and connection in making certain that education was really a rehabilitative tool. Hmm. That's pretty powerful. Um, any any stories that you can r- recall in that? Yeah, I give you, I give you, I give you a great one. Um, I give you two. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> one is I was walking, and I shared this in my TED talk. I was walking from uh, one side of uh, the Philadelphia Industrial Correctional Center. So the Philadelphia prison system has six correctional facilities. So it was really a prison industrial complex. But I was in one of the jails and I was going from the minimum side, minimum security side to the maximum security side. And I took a shortcut. You should never take a shortcut, okay? (laughs) But I took a shortcut uh, through the medical services unit. And um, when you take these shortcuts, you're bypassing some security measures. But I did it anyway. And out of nowhere, this uh, this is a now the Philadelphia prison is an adult facility. So the juveniles who were there are being tried as adults. Okay. So the, this adult inmate jumps out at me. He's screaming at me, yelling at me. So it seemed. And I was really nervous, scared. He was a big guy, large guy, deep voice. And he was asking for help. As I settled my nerves and myself, he was asking me for help. He was saying, Mr. Principal, I need your help. And when... When I listened to him and talked to him and asked him some uh, probing questions, he was currently in the Hooked on Phonics program, and he wanted to get his GED. Hmm. And in that moment, and even over time, here is a, at the time, he was 55 years old. He was carrying around the burden of illiteracy for all of his oh, life. Wow. And he was looking for the principal. He finally saw the principal and ask for help to help him with reading. And so when we talk about that connection from school to prison and reading, if we don't get reading right at the early age, that important life skill, that could be another story for other kids to become an adult, unable to read, still trying to learn how to read, but your life is behind bars. Mm. So that's just one story about the power of literacy. Did he did he uh, get did he get his GED? He didn't get his GED in, in that moment, but I got him enrolled to get his GED. So I worked with the phonics folks, the program that he was in. That was a different program that than, than I was overseeing. Okay. But I made certain that whatever he had to do in that course, he was um, 
uh, fast-tracked, so to speak, yeah. to the GED side, which he would have to take adult basic education classes first right. and then build up those skills, be able to take the GED. Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. wow, that's great. And, 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 and the other story is the power of education. You know, a, a social worker, so the Philadelphia prison system is a community. You know, uh, people move about, they go to work, they go to the library, they go to faith-based places, they go get their hair cut, they go to recreation, all those things. And one day, uh, a social worker came to my office and thanked me. Hmm. And um, I just said, no, not a problem, you're welcome. But it was something about her thank you that kind of stayed with me. So I tried to inquire, like, with my GED examiners, like, why is she thanking me? And they said, well, and they gave me the guy's name. They said, you know, um, he was an inmate. He just got his GED. And I said, well, hundreds of others get their GED. So why is this one so special? And um, so I inquired more, like, was his case in the news? Was he, um, you know, a security case? Like, what was going on? And I found out that he was an 18-year-old who had just been sentenced to death. And he was going to be transferred from the Philadelphia prison system to a state correctional institution for death row inmates. And he, through his social worker, wanted to thank me for the opportunity to take his GED in a secure setting because he couldn't move to the classes. But it was his last opportunity to make his mother proud of him. Oh my gosh. And to make his family proud of him. And so I, I take that story and say if someone can put their mind to education, although it was the situation he had himself in, but in that situation, then folks who are not incarcerated can still overcome challenges. Wow. I don't even I don't even know how to ask a next question after that because that's pretty that's pretty powerful. But I I do know that you talk a lot about okay, so you come from a perspective that literacy is an important skill to develop in incarcerated youth and even adults, but you also say that there's a way that the public schools can help prevent that school to prison pipeline. And can you talk a little bit about what you think about that? Yeah. Um the training. So to prevent students from going to jail, it's really about our expectations and opportunities. What are our expectations for students who struggle right in front of us? We see them struggling. Mm-hmm. We can handle it by behavior again, or we can handle it about being vulnerable about what we have to get better with. Mm-hmm. And so what are our expectations for students who struggle? And then once we know that they're struggling and they're not proficient, they're not being successful in school, what are the opportunities to help them that we are putting in place? So it's really about expectations and opportunities. Um, you know, I was talking, I don't want to sidetrack, but I was talking to some employees who were cleaners. Okay. And I was talking to them about their connection to school. And they, they didn't understand what I was talking about. And I was telling them about space and conditions. As a cleaner, what spaces that children engage in are you responsible for? And what is that condition of that space as it results to your ability to make it clean, make it inviting, make it a space that children can thrive in? 
And so it really is about adults understanding what is our expectations Mm. and what are we doing to make certain that these expectations come to fruition. Now, that sounds easier said than done. There are always challenges. There are always um, things that happen throughout the day at any school across the country. But I always leave audiences with what are our expectations for our most vulnerable, marginalized students who are English language learners, students who have uh, IEPs, uh, students who live in the foster care homes, um, students who have some diagnosed behavioral health situations and our children who need adults to help them. Once we have our understanding and expectations, what are the opportunities we're going to put in place to help them thrive? And Mm -hmm. it's as simple as that, expectations and opportunities. Hmm. Do you think, and this is, I know this is a hard question because it's sort of general and I don't mean it to be too general, but do you think that we have different expectations for different students and what does that what does it mean to have low expectations for the outcome of a student themselves yes we have different expectations with different students um you know that is a really serious topic and a hot topic and and one that i i try my best to uh show folks that if we're in a school community then at some point we all have to come around to you know, common expectations for our students. But people come from different walks of life in a school or organization, neighborhoods they were raised in versus the neighborhood they're working in, uh, family culture versus this family culture, you know, uh, immigrant families versus non-immigrant families. So we all come from a different expectation. Mm-hmm. And so the leader is trying to, you know, best ensure that using data so it's not personal that we all get together and be on the same wavelength and so yes people come with different expectations people come wanting for their kids their students what they want for their own child and some come with not giving their students what they would give their child And so that is real. It's happening every day in communities. Yeah. I think a little bit about expectations, too, is the line between expectations and protect. Sometimes we feel bad for students and want to protect them from hurt or protect them from struggle. And we don't always give them the right kind of instruction because we want to be protective. That's true. Uh, I hear teachers say that. Um, I share this in my TED talk and other presentations. As educators, we're the experts on education. So you have to put education and educating and lesson planning and planning and being intentional first. Yeah. And there are going to be issues around home life, poverty, social economics, this parents incarcerated that you're not the expert in. But again, opportunities, who can we leverage or partner with as a school community to help us with those issues that we are not the experts in Mm. so that opportunities continue to thrive. And so when teachers um, and, and we've all done it, you know, 
I just feel so bad for this child and I don't want to push this child because, you know, when they get home, it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. No, when you have that child, give that child everything you can give them because it might be the only time they get it and give them more. So when they get home, there's a diversion. There's there's some extended learning that they have to do. And then think about your partnership with that family. What can you help that family with? Like, can you help that family understand the curriculum? Can you help that family understand what the homework assignments are? Can you help that family uh, help their child? And so how are we helping so others can help us with the problems that we're not the experts in? Yeah. I like how you said that, that we're, we're not the experts in, and there's some things we can't control. Um, and, and so that goes back to then teacher preparation, right? Mm-hmm. So why it's so important. Talk a little bit about that training and why you see yeah. that that's so important. Yeah. I think that, um, and this is a crazy idea, but I talk <laughs> about it all the time, that teacher preparation training should be inside correctional settings. Why? Because inside correctional settings, you will see all the challenges that we talk about. Challenges of poverty, challenges of dysfunctional home lives, challenges of reading, challenges of not having relationships with good good relationships with adults, all of those challenges. And if you are able to at least part of your teacher preparation curriculum can be um, can include being exposed to those challenges mm-hmm. and learning how to navigate them. When a teacher graduates and aspires for a district school or whatever school they aspire to, and they get into a challenging school, a school that struggles with performance or a school that struggles with students, they will not run away from the challenges. They will be able to to understand, navigate, and already have a plan of action to help. Hmm. And so teacher preparation doesn't do enough of that setup. So we talk about student teaching and folks go out and they do their six weeks here and they do their six weeks there and they but really putting aspiring teachers in a situation where they have to learn some valuable tough skills about the type of students they may encounter uh, when they go into that school district. Yeah. You've been talking about this for a while. What kind of response have you gotten to that idea? Anybody take you up on that? or You know, when I talk to folks, and I've talked to um, a few universities that have reached out, I've talked to folks who want to work with universities in this area that have reached out, it always comes back to security. In my opinion, it always comes back to really a reluctancy to really go inside of a correctional setting to do exactly what I'm saying. And once folks can get over that, that um, these environments, yes, they are dangerous, but they are also communities. There are all types of people from different walks of life, and you can really make an impact with them. And so if folks can get beyond the security aspect of going into a facility, yeah, then something like that could thrive. I remember uh, first going to the Philadelphia prison system as a principal when I had been a principal at other schools. And I told a friend of mine, he said, well, what school are you at now? I said, well, I'm going to be at the Philadelphia prison system. And he looked at me like my career was dead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was, it, I could still see his face like, like, how did you go from this to that? 
Yeah. Not knowing that my career started in juvenile prisons. Right. So going from this to that was like, I'm about to do something extraordinary, you know. And so, but but folks can't get past going inside of a place that has barbed wires. Yeah. It's, it's the, uh, the fear is real. You know, I, I, I get it. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, I know you love hearing about the latest research on early literacy. For even more insights and best practices from education experts, check out Amplify's two other podcasts, Math Teacher Lounge and Science Connections. Math Teacher Lounge is in the middle of a new season exploring all the fascinating research about math anxiety. It's not just the case that people who are bad at math are anxious about it. It's actually that the anxiety itself can cause you to do worse in math. One of the teachers that I worked with had done her student teaching with a teacher who had math anxiety and who never taught math. And so she entered her teaching career never having taught math before or seen it taught. Meanwhile, Science Connections has been investigating science's status as the underdog. If you were to work it out, how many minutes of science an elementary teacher teaches per day, it's like 18 minutes for the lower elementary grades. And exploring the benefits that come with changing that. We started to see this trend of students communicating more in English because they were excited about the science that they had been learning. That's what's happening right now on the current seasons of Math Teacher Lounge and Science Connections. Subscribe to both wherever you listen to this show. Now, back to Science of Reading, the podcast. When you were a principal and working with those teachers then inside the facility, what was that recruitment like? Or were you able to get teachers and what was their tenure? Did they stay? Did they leave? So you have what you have. And what I mean by that is there were teachers there. And so what I saw in those teachers was potential. But what they did not have was curriculum understanding. Mm. They did not have intentional lesson planning understanding. They did not understand data and standards, you know, academic standards. You know, uh, it was busy work. It was it was. conversations, current events, that type of thing. And so children were not thriving. And so I used the the teachers that I had, in other words, the resources that exist, invest in them. I had to make some classroom changes like, okay, you're not going to be in this classroom any longer with this group, but I need you over here. So you're having those hard conversations about changes that I want to make and then you have to sell the students on you're used to busy work but now we're getting ready to do some challenging work and Mm -hmm. then get them on board so I work with the staff and the team I had made changes messaged it with a vision and a plan and folks came along and we were able to create a school model that focused on what I call a cohort teaching model, where instead of this, because space was limited, I needed teachers who, when we talk about recruiting, I needed teachers who could do reading and social studies, perhaps have some background in special education, that type of thing, mm-hmm. so that kids could go between 
of small groups of kids between a reading social studies teacher and a math and science teacher. And then I could get more bang for the spaces that I had in those places. And I would also implement classrooms on the housing units for the juveniles who could not come to the school for other reasons. And I would make spaces throughout the prison system so that spaces that would have been recreational or would have been um, a visiting area, maybe, you know, I would get that space and make it a school space. Hmm. Interesting. So you were talking a little bit about convincing the students that we're going to go from busy work to doing, you know, things that are a little more rigorous. A lot, a lot of our listeners actually talk about challenges with older students, like helping older students be motivated to actually want to go back and and learn how to read and put the systems and structures in place. Can you talk a little bit about, about that with the students, their their changing sort of expectations or rigor? I talk about Keenan. So Keenan is a, is a student of mine who I've, I, I, I met him and spent maybe a month with him at the prison system. He was a student leader in correctional settings. Okay. okay. So <laughs> it, I, he's the student leader means that he's running things. Yeah. He's a big guy. Keenan's about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, at the time, he was about 200-some-odd pounds, and he was 15 years old. And I was trying to share my vision about I'm going to get technology, we're going to get this, we're going to get that, I'm going to get new school furniture, we're going to make this a school. And he told me, and no one in his way, I'm not going to say it here, but he said, (laughs) you're not going to do anything for us. But he he used some other language, some colorful language, 15-year-old challenging the principal. And he had all these other juveniles, you know, behind him. Mm-hmm. And so I had to show them, I had to model for them that my word was good. Yeah. Now Keenan went on to serve 15 years. He was 15, he served 15 years. Only knew him for a short time, but he always stayed on my mind. And the other students benefited from what he challenged me on because we made it a true academic focused school inside of the correctional facility. But years later, Keenan reached out to me when he came out of state correctional facility. Now he's almost 30 at this time. He has now written a book. Unspoken Truth is the name of his book. Um, And he is the example of making an impact on children. And so impact is... You know, it's not about data at this point or metrics or or numbers at this point. It's about getting kids to believe in you. And then when Keenan reached out to me 15 years later, he talked to me about what I had said. And when he went to the state correctional facility, he looked for people like me. He looked for people who were into education, adults who were about teaching inmates and getting them to learn and get more education and his life now is successful and so it's about making an impact and reaching kids and that's what we did so we had those challenges but it's really about having a vision being able to articulate your vision to some of the toughest kids who 
they were fearful of learning. They did not want to learn. This was like, what are you trying to get us to do? What potential are you talking about that we have? And getting them to believe in themselves. That's an incredible story. And I'm going to look that book up, Unspoken, Unspoken Truth. Unspoken Truth yeah. by Keenan Hudson. In fact, um, Keenan writes about me in his book. Wow. About turning around the facility and, 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 and what I did for the facility and for him. And so I'm just so proud of him. And um, no one has ever written about me in a book. <laughs> That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. You and Keenan should be doing presentations together. Yes, uh, we, we should be. And, and in fact, this Saturday we're doing one together. This would be our our third one together. That's amazing! Yes. Wow. Mm. And I'm sure you have many, many more stories that of I do. And, and of people that don't necessarily come back and thank you because they don't know how to find you or don't know how to reach you. Yeah. Let me just share one more, if I, if I could. Please. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I'm on the housing unit in House of Correction, which is an uh, 18th century type facility. When you think of jails, bars and keys and no cameras and um, dark spots and all that kind of stuff. But I go to visit, you know, I, I oftentimes went to visit the juveniles throughout the week. And every now and then I would go on the weekends. And one of the young men, when I get there, the correctional officers, they, they tell me the kid's name. And they say he wants to really see you. So I, I go to see him, and he tells me, Mr. Pels, I'm going to quit school. And, and I know you've been really trying to get me to stay in school, but I'm going to quit. You know, I said, why are you going to quit? You know, don't quit. You know, I'm going through my spiel about don't quit, don't do that. you could got potential, all of the things to kind of inspire him. He says, nah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 16 years old and I'm still on a first grade level. This is this is literacy now. Yeah. The students understood their plight. That adult an inmate that I told you about, they underst- he understood his plight. And we educators, teachers, we have to recognize kids who struggle and give them opportunities. And so I said to him, you know, almost begged him, don't do that. You know, we can do this, we can do that. He eventually was transferred, as many of them were, to state correctional facilities. And so I don't know what happened, you know. Uh, I don't know if I made an impact. I don't know if those words helped him or not. But, um, but, But right in that moment again, that's literacy for me. That's reading for me. These are real stories about children living their life unable to read it's not data they're telling you they're in a situation of incarceration and they figure that their life is over as a result of not being taught in school wow Mm -hmm. and how many more students do we have that aren't incarcerated that are struggling with the very same thing yeah there are a lot you know And, and and as i said earlier and i'll say again you know i've been able to help students and I know I've also hurt students you know and 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 that's something that you know is part of the journey but it's like what do you do about it how do you make yourself better so that you don't hurt students by not knowing how to put the right instruction in front of them that includes the type of teachers the type of resources and all those type of things and it's just something that schools if they 
you know, humble themselves to understand that it's about expectations and opportunities. We can help more kids. Yeah, for sure. Um, your your impact has been amazing. Your story is great. Um, I'm sure we could talk many, many, many more stories. <laughs> but I wonder as we close, if there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that you didn't get a chance to talk about, any messages for them. Yeah. So the juvenile justice education um, is a perspective, is, a, is an aspect of education that goes unrecognized and unnoticed. Uh, many years ago when I received the, an award from the Council of the Great City Schools and I met with some superintendents and chief academic officers, they did not even think about until they heard my presentation the students in their own districts, their mm. own communities who were incarcerated. Because when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, we talk about it just like it's a thing. But it's a real thing. And there is a prison side. No one talks about the prison side, like school to prison. So they're out of school. They dropped out. We forget about them. But they are lingering, lagging in an incarcerated setting. And they deserve a quality education, too. And so educators who believe that all children can learn and that, you know, everything is all students. Well, here's the challenge to them then make it happen for all students, including the ones that, you know, society has thrown away. And so starting my career in that setting, but transitioning through traditional high school and elementary school and working at the district level as well, I keep that perspective with me. So when I visit classrooms and talk to students or hear with my third ear about different challenges, I always reflect back to what it could be if we don't get this right. And what advice might you give to people in community is to find out how, what that incarcerated system might look like in their own community. What's your advice for that? Visit. There's a, there's a facility, a juvenile justice, a family court. There are um, those institutions in communities. Visit those communities. Ask for a tour. Ask about uh, the school inside that setting. Ask for a tour. You know, act like you're concerned about it and then make, make yourself act on that concern because those facilities are there. So we talk about all the negative that's happening that gets a child there, whether it's school to prison or something that they did in the neighborhood. But if you really want to know about it, then, then access it. Access that juvenile justice center. Access that family court. Access family court judges and folks like that. So, so make it a priority. Mm. That's great advice and a, a great challenge that we'll throw out there to our listeners and their communities about making a difference for those students that yes. are sometimes forgotten. Yes. Well, Hildebrand, thank you so much again for joining. Like I said, we're going to link our listeners to all these great resources in the show notes. Um, and thank we just you. appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I am really excited. And thank you a lot for thinking about me and thinking about this aspect of education and allow me to share uh, some of my stories and experiences. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with award-winning educator and author Hildebrand Pelser III. We'll have a link in the show notes to his book, Unlocking Potential, 
Organizing a School Inside a Prison. Listeners, if you take Hildebrand's advice and visit a juvenile justice center, we would love to hear about your experience. Tell us about it in our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Science of Reading the Podcast is brought to you by Amplify. For more information on how Amplify leverages the science of reading, go to amplify.com slash ckla. Listeners, we're going to be back in your feed in just one week with a special bonus episode. This one is all about integrating literacy, instruction, and math. So we started asking ourselves, what would happen if we considered any story a chance to engage as mathematical sense makers? Thanks so much for listening.